Hello, salam, and welcome to the Ajam podcast. Dear listeners, thank you so much for tuning in over the last couple months. It has been very humbling to know that you have been interested in some of the stories that we've been able to tell over this medium. And I just want to use this time to introduce the second season of the Ajam podcast. As you know, we've had a two-month hiatus over the summer. I was very busy doing dissertation work and traveling for research and whatnot. But now that I'm back in one place, I'm ready to get you more regular content. And I'm very excited because part of this regular content will be the launch of a new series within the Ajam podcast, which is about the Indian Ocean. I'm happy to introduce a good friend of mine, Lizzie Stevenson. Hi, Lindsay. Hi. Lindsay Stevenson just finished her PhD at Princeton University in Near Eastern Studies, and she's continuing her postdoctoral work at that institution. Lindsay, so we had a talk a couple months ago about your research, which is about mobility and pre-oil modernity in the Persian Gulf. And after that, one thing led to another. And the next thing we knew is we decided to do this series on the Indian Ocean. Yeah, I think I made a petition for moving south. That's good. You know, this <laughs> is good for me because I'm always trying to push north, especially with the other Ajem editors. So bring more people on board. You can conquer more territory. Exactly. So um, for our listeners who are not necessarily familiar with this space as a regional framework, why study the Indian Ocean? What does it mean to look at the Indian Ocean as a unified space as opposed to more traditional forms of territorial demarcation, such as you know, the Middle East or East Africa or you know, Southeast Asia? I think looking at the Indian Ocean, it's mostly been considered peripheral to other regions that have been established by certain world events and politics. But if we look from the perspective of the ocean onto the literal spaces of East Africa, the Middle East, including Iran, South Asia, Southeast Asia, we get a very different picture of what the world looks like, actually. And crossing these, what are supposed to be bounded polities, actually show us how people interact, the kind of relationships of trust that exist across uh, what are supposed to be linguistic and territorial boundaries that we find actually don't exist. That is something that I enthusiastically support as somebody that works within the Ajam framework, right? Which is basically looking at the other or the periphery of the Arab world. So, you know, Turkic worlds, Persianate worlds. And Indian Ocean for me is something that I'm intellectually attracted to as well, because the water as a space for transaction of people and ideas and objects that have been moving for thousands of years, right? I think that a series is something that would be kind of really amazing to put together. So I'm happy that you decided to initiate this. Definitely. And I think it will be nice to sort of strike a balance between this environmental determinism, like the winds blew people together. And then there's more peopled stories of, well, okay, they're, you know, blown together, but they have to form these networks, they have to work together across their differences. And so I think a lot of really exciting stories will come out of this series. So Lindsay, just for orienting our listeners, what is the series going to look like? I know that you're organizing a few conferences and workshops about the Indian Ocean in the next months, but 
how is this podcast related to that? How is this series um, related to these larger conversations that you're having? Sure. So my network primarily consists of people working on the modern period. So we'll probably be getting a lot of stories from the 19th and early 20th century, maybe 18th century. So we'll be looking at movement identities, the way that the formation of modernity sort of reorients people living on the edge of the ocean towards these national identities and how the ocean still remains a part of the story long after people are supposed to be part of these nation states. So we're going to be having conversations with a very diverse group of scholars working on diverse spaces and just see where the conversations take us from, you know, Zanzibar to Java, Malaysia, who knows. That's very exciting. And I look forward to participating as much as I can. Let's jump into it. So our first episode within this series is actually our conversation that we had several months back about your research. Once again, it's on mobility and pre-oil modernity in the Persian Gulf. I hope you enjoy it and looking forward to hearing your thoughts about the podcast series on the Indian Ocean. For our listeners who didn't get a chance to read your article, your interview was about the idea of pre-oil modernity. Persian Gulf studies, as well as just people studying the region or what they understand of the region, is very much tied up to oil exploration and the development of petrocapitalism in the area. So most people, when they think about what was there before oil, they don't really have a good understanding or even an idea of what that is. What is pre-oil modernity as you define it? Sure, this is a really important question for historians to think about, but also people who are teaching the Middle East more broadly. The Gulf really doesn't show up on the map or on syllabi even until oil comes into the picture. And even in the Gulf itself, I was actually in Bahrain this summer at a conference with UNESCO, and I was trying to convince people in the Gulf that modernity doesn't start with oil. I mean, even though their grandparents or parents lived it, they also need to be um, reminded and convinced that there are big modern changes that happen well before oil really comes into play in around the 1940s. So, I mean, there are different ways that we can hash out what modernity means exactly. Is it simply about when Europeans show up? I would say no. But what kind of changes are we looking for? So, for example, what world they see themselves a part of really starts to change, I would say, towards the end of the 19th century. And maybe a good place to start is the legal sphere, in particular, 
anti-slavery treaties that the British are contracting in the Western Indian Ocean, the scale is really small. You have a couple of British boats patrolling the waters, but people are being stopped on their sort of everyday routes or annual routes from Zanzibar into the Gulf, the Red Sea, Indian Ocean. They're being stopped and checked to see if there are slaves on board. So people have to start thinking about, are they slave or free? Who do they belong to? Who are they subjects of? Um, And I think maybe this is, in terms of like modern subjectivities, this is a point worth focusing on. It's not something that I've uh, worked on specifically, but I think in terms of how people see themselves vis-a-vis others in a way that isn't primarily based on family ties, this is a moment worth uh, reflecting on the sort of legal sphere. This idea of differentiation and what you are and what you are not coming to define your political and legal status is something that really hasn't been explored from what I understand. I'm just super curious about what is happening in the Persian Gulf at this moment. Like you're talking about the British. Can you just give us a overview of the lands, well, the seascape, I guess, of the, of the Persian <laughs> Gulf, right? Like, because right now we think of the, the Persian Gulf as some like, you know, hotly contested space, a geostrategic zone where there is a line in the middle of it dividing Iran in the Gulf states. What did it look like in this period um, in, at the turn of the 20th century? Who were the major players involved? So within the Gulf itself, and I think I put this in my article, I keep saying that it's like a political backwater, um, especially as far as the um, Iranians and Ottomans are concerned. You have a lot of local sheikhs ruling around the Gulf on either side, and they have a lot of autonomy vis-a-vis the empires. Sometimes representatives of the empires like roll in and like call in their tribute payment, which they sometimes got, sometimes didn't. Sometimes the local rulers pay tribute to both the Ottomans and the Iranians. So we have to be careful about drawing the lines of empires because it's really a space of overlapping sovereignties that are constantly shifting. And so even the local sheikhs are constantly changing through this period. You know, power shifts from one hand to another. But people didn't understand sovereignty in this really heavy way. There was Ra'iyah. subjecthood, like they're sheikhs who protect their people, and this sort of switches hands, and that's okay, and like there's no sense that there should be a single sovereign to rule the land, and you know, if they lose power, it's a major upset. And even for the Iranians themselves, with Basra, sometimes it's Ottoman, sometimes it's Iranian, like it sort of shifts back and forth. I remember reading, I think it was some secondary source, might have been Ahmed Khosrow, who was saying like, We lost it, but it'll be ours again. So once the British come in, they have a way of sort of settling things. Once the sheikhs contract treaties with the British, they're sort of more or less there to stay. I mean, it didn't work out for um, Sheikh Khazal of Muhammad. What is now centered around Khoram Shah, yes? Yes, yeah. Southwest Iran, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Ahwaz Khuzestan used to be Arabistan, which is now right? Saudi Arabia. So when I say I work on Arabistan, people are like, oh, Saudi Arabia. I'm like, the old Arabistan. So like, yeah, name change has a way of like shifting our historical yeah, references. Yeah, and as a way of uh, making territorial claims, right? So you're talking about things being settled, boundaries being drawn. What is happening in terms of movement and mobility 
for example, like we hear about many important villages being settled by people from the other side of the Persian Gulf. And you have languages, you have creoles being formed, you have families on both sides. Like, what did mobility look like in this region during this time of political demarcation with um, connections with the Ottoman recession and like, let's say, British influence as well? I think there are two stories. And the one that we've mostly heard is that by the 1930s, lines are sort of in place, there are traveling passes, people's movement is restricted. And that is the case for a lot of people. But you have to look at different socioeconomic levels. So for merchants, for people traveling on steamships, they're operating at a different level than people in small villages. So if you have to go through a major port to bring your goods there, then you need the traveling passes. Um, you need to sort of identify who you're a subject of. But for the vast majority of people, especially people who have been traveling these waters for their entire lives and for generations and centuries, they don't have to go to the major ports. So they don't interact with these borders in the same way. So what I have said in my work is that borders are actually dots. They're not lines. And so the extent to which you can avoid the dots and the sort of patrolled areas around those dots representing major ports, the border didn't matter so much for mobility. But the border actually was retroactively enforced on people. So, for example... You live on the Iranian side, whether or not you're Iranian, not, not actually entirely. important to you at that point. <laughs> but if you cross to the other side, for example, we'll take Bahrain because it's a sort of cleaner case. You don't go to the major ports at Manama or Muharraq. You go to Al-Hid, which is um, in the south of the island, sort of no man's land. There are not too many British there. People are crossing all the time going to Al-Hid, and then they just disperse throughout the towns. No one's standing at the border. There's no border. Um, but then you get picked up for begging or something. And at that point, the border matters. Not at the border, but the fact that you've crossed into a space is sort of retroactively made important. So at that point, people become Iranians. Not when they cross to the other side, but when they get picked up, the British have to determine who they are, who they belong to, in order to direct them to the right authorities. And this goes back to what you were discussing earlier about slavery, right? This idea of differentiation, of othering that becomes important for legal status. Exactly. Not even when the law is like being enacted upon you directly, but the kind of awareness of the law is also important. Like every single migrant doesn't have to be picked up in order for people to start thinking about who they are, what they're going to say, how they're going to make claims about where they belong. The law has this way of infusing people with identities, even if they're not directly encountering it. How are these identities solidified or encouraged? Were there state schools, for example? What were the cultural education programs like? How did we get to this point where people identified as Iranian or Arab or these larger national identities and categories even before the establishment, let's say, of the Emirates, for example? Like, how did people see themselves beforehand? Well, with the Emirates, the state is created much, much later than my period. But I can talk a little bit about Kuwait and Bahrain. So there are these Ajam schools in Kuwait and Bahrain, but they're not initially interested in promoting 
an Iranian identity, they're actually connected to this modernist Islamic reform movement that stretches from Egypt to Indonesia, across the Indian Ocean. They're interested in these ideas of tarbiyah, for example. They see themselves as modern schools. And so not so much in the case with Bahrain. There were a lot of wealthy Iranian merchants in Bahrain who started up the Ajam school there in the early 20th century. But in Kuwait, at the Ajam school, when you look at the list of the people who are attending it, there are plenty of Arabs who are also attending school there. They're not learning Persian. They're in the sort of English section of the school. These are wealthy merchant families in Kuwait, and it wasn't a problem for their children to go to this Iranian school because it wasn't seen as like promoting Iranianness necessarily, but it was sort of leading the way in this modern turn, teaching English and arithmetic in this sort of modern subjects. So even the schools themselves don't initially promote Iranian identity necessarily. That does get co-opted, however, particularly in Bahrain, in the late 1920s, and they become sort of flag-waving nationalist schools. So then you see them adopting the Pahlavi hats and the Iranian flag and teaching Persian and instilling the children with this pride for being Iranian. Because if you take a step back and look at where Iran is in the world at that period, they're very much like the Ottomans, you know, trying to bring their territory into this modern world and trying to be like very European. And so it was a source of pride that their children could be you know, modern Iranians. That's something that I am not familiar with at all in terms of how in these schools outside of what is now the territorial boundaries of Iran are taking up these Reza Shah reforms, even things such as costumes and uniforms and clothing. That's yeah. fascinating. And, and it's all throughout the Indian Ocean as well. I mean, even as far as Rangoon, you have Iranian schools. I mean, I haven't done research on them, but at all of the major ports where you have merchants from Iran, you have these schools popping up. And they're in touch with the system in Iran and sort of taking their curriculum from there as well. Um, so as a departure from that, how do we fit the Persian Gulf into this larger Indian Ocean world? I mean, people have been doing this for a while, trying to use the Indian Ocean as a framework. But for you and your research, especially now that you mentioned these schools in Rangoon, which blows my mind, what can you say about these short distance travels versus, let's say, this larger Indian Ocean circuit that is occurring before the age of oil? The Indian Ocean world is really what animates these spaces. People along the littoral, the Western Indian Ocean and the Eastern Indian Ocean, people are facing the water much more than they are the interior. And so that's what creates this world. And, and in a large sense, the Indian Ocean is really a kind of economic unit. People have looked to what Bradell was doing with the Mediterranean and used the monsoon winds and the sort of ecological perspective to show the connectedness of the Indian Ocean. And it's definitely there. But I'm more interested in how trade moves people and so you have these long-distance connections that go from Kuwait to Zanzibar and then across to Gujarat, uh, specifically Bombay, what is now called Mumbai, and all of my sources, it's Bombay. Um, and India really serves as a fulcrum between the Western Indian Ocean and the Eastern Indian Ocean. So while there are like kind of intellectual networks that go all the way across, in the world that I work with, it basically ends with Bombay. 
This is an annual connectivity because of the way that the monsoon winds were blowing. People would leave at particular times of the year and return at particular times of the year. But meanwhile, you have all of these short-range networks that are also connected to this long-distance travel. Why? How? Because people are taking goods and bringing goods in bulk, and usually they stop at major ports. And then there's a kind of redistribution from major ports to smaller towns. And so these are the, the small-scale connections that especially pick up in the 1930s once you have steamships, which can't go to every port, right? I mean, we have to remember that you need really deep water. And even then, steamships can't just like pull up to the docks in Manama. They have to stay a couple of miles out. And then these small ships bring stuff to shore and then redistributed throughout the Gulf. I was reading an Iranian document about Boucher. It was like a correspondence between Tehran and Boucher. And someone was saying that if we could just dredge the port, Boucher can be the next Bombay. And they're like really convinced that like we just need to make it Only this deeper. really expensive, intense process. And yeah. yeah and then we'll be Bombay. Like they're really, really hopeful. So that's how the sort of long range is, is connected to the short range. And so when you have this explosion of capital and all of these goods coming in from different markets in the 30s and the means to transport them, you actually have an uptick in the local redistribution. So short distances are run across back and forth much more frequently in the 1930s than they had been in the, let's say, the 19th century. I was in a panel about questioning this cosmopolitan world of the Indian Ocean and how like maybe it wasn't so cosmopolitan is just projecting what what we want what to we want a, for the future as a romantic yeah. idea of movement of being able to have multiple identities and Exactly. And I, and I think that the merchants were a part of this cosmopolitan world, but then all of a sudden and this is across the Indian Ocean in the 30s you have like thousands, tens of thousands of people crossing. I and mean, previously it was a sort of elite group that was making these, well, except for the forced labor, that were sort of just bouncing around between ports. But then you have all of these migrants moving to the other side. And so what that does to the sort of host societies who were like aware of difference, I mean, Iranians were not new to the other side of the Gulf, but all of a sudden like, you know, tens of thousands of Iranians is a new thing. And, and there's a lot of backlash against that. And there was a sense that the British were protecting them because they exercised jurisdiction over them on behalf of the Iranian government. It's a very like, complicated uh, story. You were talking about trade, commerce, and as you mentioned, that brings with it labor. How can we look at the role of labor historically, even before we have the rise of the oil industry? Sure. And what I've talked about in my work is I've tried to like put forth a periodization of labor because people, when they think of the Gulf, they automatically think of foreign labor. There are more South Asian laborers in the Gulf, I think, than actual nationals with passports. Um, so people are, are drawn to this. But this labor from other places, let's not even say they're not foreign. They're, they've been connected for a long time. But the scale is foreign, I think, not the people themselves. But this really starts in the late 19th century with the pearl industry, the date industry. And Matthew Hopper has done an excellent job of showing how the date trade is connected to the North American market and how this demand for dates led to 
uh, an increase of forced labor and slavery in the Gulf. And so this is really the 19th century, these kind of industries. The industries existed prior to European demand, but then when European demand enters the scene, there are not enough laborers to produce all of the estates that are needed for the world market. So labor comes or is brought in from East Africa. Then you have a crackdown over a very long period, starting in around 1873 is one of the major treaties that the British contract in the Western Indian Ocean. So there's this very, very slow process of cutting back on slaves. Then the capital that flows into the Gulf because of the sale of dates and pearls has to be spent, right? And so people want great things that they didn't have before, like permanent dwellings, multiple story dwellings. It, there's this flood of capital that needs to be worked out. And so at the same time that you have all this money in the Gulf, on the western side of the Gulf at least, you have Iranians migrating. And so they are naturally the ones who start being the laborers in the town. So there are plenty of Iranians working in the pearling industry, but predominantly Iranians are the people who are sort of working on these sort of modern transformations. And by modern, I mean sort of like modern infrastructure, building roads, building the docks, houses. They're the laborers of the town who the money is getting spent on. And so these sort of work together slave labor allowing for the influx of capital, and then the Iranians being on the other side with the dissemination of capital. And then you see the same kind of situation with oil, and that Arab labor comes in with the rise, and then South Asian labor with the dissemination of the capital. When people talk about the oil industry and modernity and development, even people in the Gulf themselves, they would say, oh, before oil, there was nothing but pearl and dows, right? And what your work is trying to do is actually like there is this long history of urban development, of capital flow, of mobility. It's a booming place. There's things happening way before 1950, 1940, right? Right. I mean, in the Gulf, there's sort of this dichotomy. And we keep saying the Gulf. And what we mean is the Western side of the Gulf, like the predominantly Arab countries of the Gulf. There's this dichotomy between modernity and tradition. And this is what I found at the UNESCO meeting that I was trying to explain to people that what you think of as tradition, like houses with the bud gears and sorry, the wind towers and these wooden verandas, people think of this as their tradition. Okay, that's fine if you want to think of it like that. But this scale of building was only made possible during this period in the early 20th century. I mean, the people who are building these buildings that are now symbols of Gulf culture were predominantly the Iranian migrants. And that's why you see the shared architectural styles across the Gulf. I mean, I give people a picture of um, Bandarlinga, Hangan, Dubai, Bahrain, Boucher, Kuwait, and say like, okay, place these pictures. Where are they? And of course, on the Western side, everyone thinks that they're all on the Western side. And they're shocked to see that, no, these are your sister towns on the other side. In Kuwait, I always show people pictures of Boucher and they think, oh, this is old Kuwait before they destroyed everything. And I say, no, this is the other half of Kuwait that's on the Iranian side now. And people are completely blown away. But this is really only made possible by this major influx of migrants. And this is before oil. And people don't realize that there are all of these changes going on just in the built environment alone because of the capital from the pearling and date trade. 
Lindsay, before I let you go, I have one more question for you. It puts it into a larger conversation with Middle Eastern studies as a field. As somebody who studies one body of water to another, how does this affect our ability to kind of understand the role of connectivity, of mobility in the formation of national identity, but also this turning away from these sorts of networks and things that once brought this capital for allowed this type of development and this understanding of modernity? In the wider field of Middle East studies, there has to be a recognition that these places that are sort of conceived of as peripheries actually have different trajectories than the core, in air quotes. And it's worth reflecting on the sort of multi-tiered transition to modernity across the region. What people in the Gulf see as the beginning of modernity of this oil period is really precisely the same moment when life is sort of reoriented away from the water and towards this nationally imagined Arab world. And for the eastern side, life is reoriented towards the Iranian center. And so there's this sense that tradition was with the water and the future is like towards the interior. This isn't even just imagined, like people are actually physically drawn from their work on boats to work in government ministries. And that's made possible by the oil wealth that started to come in. And so it seems like every person has this life story about how the older generation, how they used to work on this trade that had something to do with the water, but then they got a government job doing X, Y, Z. And so you can see this even in people's lives. And this is the next project that I'm going to be working on is looking at a social history of this turn away from the ocean and to this sort of nationally imagined space, both in terms of Gulf local nationalism, but Arab nationalism as well. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I had an excellent time having this conversation. Very few people are willing to talk about the (laughs) Gulf of Mesa. Thank you for engaging with my ideas. And I hope that your um, listeners and readers will be intrigued. That was Lindsay Stevenson, postgraduate research associate at Princeton University. If you would like to engage with us further, send us a message on Facebook or Twitter. We'll be happy to continue the conversation there. Till next time.